Hey everybody, it is episode 35 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris joining you from Austin, Texas with my partner in crime, Steve. Hey Steve. Hello, podcasting world. We are excited today to bring a rogue runner on the show as our special guest. And we're going to be talking about running and poker and ultra marathoning, kind of all wrapped up into one and lessons of that from somebody who's been through the grind recently on all of those things. So... John Armbrust is our guest today, and we'll get to those topics in a second. Thank you for joining us, John. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. I love this podcast. So this is cool. John is also a listener, so if you have an interesting story, share it with us, and we'll bring you on as well. <laughs> We've got more listeners actually already scheduled, so it's going to be, become more common as we go here. <laughs> as we dive in, or before we get to John, we're going to talk about what we talk about at the beginning of these podcasts, which is running current events, and we have... One, to start with, that hits close to home, our former Rogue AC, Rogue Athletic Club athlete Lenny Waite has just recently been selected to attend the World Championships in London for Great Britain. We had mentioned a few weeks back that she qualified and hit her standard in the steeplechase, but as Britain can be a little bit finicky about choosing teams, we didn't know if she was going to get the call, and she did, so we're super excited to know that Lenny will be racing in the World Championships, and by, th- by the time you hear this, it'll be a Monday, and the World Championships will already be going on, and she'll be racing that Wednesday and Friday, hopefully, if everything works out. So look out for Lenny in London. This one is particularly sweet, I think, Steve, because we all know she went to Rio last August, but wasn't able to be her best there because of a torn planter issue that, you know, basically... She finished the race, but couldn't really perform at the level we know she can perform at there. So I know it must be sweet for her to bounce back from that and earn this world championship team, especially after she was denied in 2015. So knowing her as, an, as a coach, how do you feel about this for Lenny? I mean, he couldn't be more excited for her to have passed through a one key threshold that I think seems... Yeah, I coached... I knew of her career for a long time, and... I coached her on and off a couple of times, but she'd always had a challenge getting the UK to see the value in her, for British athletics to see her value. Um, It was especially frustrating in 2015 when she um, really could have gained that experience to have run a world championship type race before she went into the Olympics. But the Olympic, that, that decision of theirs not to select her, um, which she had met, the standards they were looking for, but not every standard they looked for. Um, and so they had selected other people to run in other events that had met even less standards than she did. So it was very hard not to feel cheated, both herself and I at that point. I was coaching her at that point. And uh, so we endeavored to make 2016 um, a moot point and that if she passed over all the thresholds and jumped through all the hoops that they were asking, that we would uh, get to go to the Olympics, and she did. So, of course, she didn't have the race that she wanted, but we were really, I was really nervous this year because they hadn't selected her, and they sort of gave her a bit of a rough time going into the Olympics, especially with coming out with an injury going in. We were a little worried how that would all play out. But, uh, and then she didn't, has not had the most consistent racing cycle this year. She's moved back to Houston and hasn't gone as well. So, but she's runs a couple great races. So for them to select her, I know for her it must feel really 
really good because she can now consider that she doesn't have to earn, she doesn't have to prove herself over and over and over and over again. She's a known quantity there. And I think she'll run better because of that. She's also going to run a lot better because her training went really, really well going into it. I don't know a ton about what the exact training that she's doing. I don't communicate with her on a day-to-day basis, but she's certainly in better shape than um, she was going into the Olympics, I think. And I think that she's got a real good shot to make the final. And then hopefully she'll run really well in the final. So, and. For those that don't know, Lenny, just to recap, she was born and raised in Austin, went to Rice University in Houston, trained with Rogue Athletic Club a little bit later after going pro as a runner, and went to Rio, tore a planter, was able to finish the race on a tore planter, which is insane over hurdle jump or over uh, barriers and water jumps. And I remember talking to her when she got back, and at that point, you know, she'd kind of gotten her big goal thinking that Rio was it. And I think she was very undecided about what would be next, whether she would continue to run at the highest level or whether she would just move on to to the rest of life. And from what I understand, she was undecided on that even through kind of early spring, not really knowing what would come. But then as the training progressed and she started having some results, she thought, hey, you know, I can do this again. So to me, it's just cool to see somebody who came from that low of having an injury and not being able to be your best at a world event to be able to bounce back from that and come back and do it again especially in light of her snub from 2015 it sort of makes this one even sweeter so super happy for lenny and all those folks who i think that running is some perfect perfectly timed progression that looks like a you know uh Cutting through, you know, the perfect progression with no ups and downs needs to look at Lenny Waite's career for inspiration. Continues to come back at it at a what many people would say is beyond her prime. I think she's still going into her prime. Personally, she started so late as a as a runner. She's been an athlete all her life, but she started late in running, and I think she can still continue to improve as long as the fire's there. And but it, it should be a good lesson to everybody that, hey, you're not going to have every race go great. You're going to have ups and downs, and you're going to have to find the will to achieve the goals that you want. And the key there is is know what you want. And once she did know what she wanted, she was able to go get it. It's pretty cool. Yes. And this episode will release on August 2nd, uh, 7th. She races on the 9th. That's a Wednesday. And then hopefully she'll make it to the final on Friday the 11th. But if you're listening, definitely check that out. We will be doing a preview show that you'll hopefully already have listened to by this point. So you'll have all the ins and outs for Worlds, but do watch out for Lenny in London. Speaking of London, our second kind of topic we've got to talk about, which we've mentioned before on this show, is that Kara Goucher, who was snubbed of a silver medal in the World Championships in 2007 because someone, a doper, was busted. And so she got the bronze that year but is now being upgraded to silver at the time we first talked about this she hadn't been notified whether or not she would ever receive that proper silver medal she's been called by IAAF finally and will be receiving her medal in a formal medal ceremony at the London World Championships along with some other U.S. athletes the 4x400 team from Daegu will also be there and uh, friend, friend Francina McCrory, I think it will also be getting her 400 medal upgraded. So to me, it's just cool that someone from 2007 who did it the right way can get the proper medal, even if it took 10 years to do it. And I, even though I, I bash the IAAF at times for not being on top of things, I think they're getting this right. 
And it's so important for clean sport to have athletes that have had this happen to them, get beat by a busted doper, be able to have their medal or have their ceremony and their, their spot in the limelight because that's a big part of what's stolen when someone cheats. And maybe even more important than the prize money and the accolades is that moment. And so, honestly, I get emotional thinking about the emotions that Kara will be going through standing on a podium in London, getting that proper silver medal. I can't imagine how emotional that will be for her after all these years. So kudos to the IAAF for getting that right. And so happy for Kara, who is recently a guest, that she's going to finally get her moment there. Yeah, it's still it's still got to be so tough and how long I still have a, a little bit of a problem with how long it took the IAAF to get it right. But let's not focus on that. Let's just focus on the fact that they did finally get it right. Because I'm sure at this point, Kara will not be, no matter what's happening internally, externally, she's certainly going to be uh, appreciative, thankful, and excited to have that moment. Um, I'm, I'm re- reminded of a, I don't think she said this on our podcast. I think she said it on another one that we listened to and prep for her pod, uh, her on ours was just how getting she got third and she thought that was the best she could ever do but she said if she thought if she she believes that if she had gotten second in that race she might have been able to see that she could win and that might have made all the difference so i know there's a bitter sweetness to it no doubt about it but at least because i know that she stated that she thinks her career might have been different if it hadn't worked out that way but it's good that she's going to have that experience in that moment. I am kind of curious as to what Adam's going to think, <laughs> how he how he'll be as um, uh, as as understanding as uh, as others are. Some <laughs> of that jadedness might get worn off here. <laughs> it's also we got to mention Joe Pavey, who was also in that race with Kara, who finished fourth and got the rawest of raw deals in that situation in the 10K in 2007. She's going to be upgraded to bronze. I can't really imagine as a British athlete what it'll be like for her to receive that that medal standing in the stadium in London, but it's going to be emotional for both of them and super cool to see. I'm looking forward to getting a little bit more from Kara on how she feels about it. I know she shared some on social media that she's super pumped about it, but it'll be interesting to see her talk about those emotions as they come. So look out for that as well. And again, kudos to the IAAF because they're finally doing something right in the battle for clean sport. Finally, in our intro, we need to kind of go back and reassess some discussions you and I had, Steve, in episodes 23 and 24 about my running. It's been a couple months now, I mm-hmm. guess, since we had that conversation. And you were at a, it happened, a bit of a low point. It happened point. right before I had elbow surgery, <laughs> which I don't think we mentioned at that time, but I had an elbow fracture, but I had to go back and get surgery two months later, and that kind of put me back out of running for a little bit as I was recovering from that surgery. But since that recovery time, the elbow's doing great, kind of been able to start to rebuild and we haven't had a chance to check in now that I'm to the target mileage we'd talked about and kind of talking about what's next. So I thought we'd do that really quick before we turn it over to John, who might get coached up on this episode as well. <laughs> <laughs> it, has a, there's, it happens sometimes. <laughs> so, so here's the latest, Steve, from me. So you can coach me up. And just to be transparent, we haven't talked about this, so it's not like nope. any of this is, is canned. It's all coming fresh to you. We saved it for the podcast. I have been watching Chris run every Tuesday, Thursday, <laughs> and Saturday, so right. it's not like I'm going into this blind. It's important that people hear that. I'm not just reading the tea leaves completely <laughs> right. off of nothing. So, 
but it, it we have not we didn't prep this we didn't talk about it so it's it'll, you're getting it raw and uncensored the way that we yes. we like to do it so here's the latest so i started to rebuild post elbow surgery as soon as i could i think i ended up having to take about 10 days off that time until my arm would move enough again to waddle down the street and since then i've been building took it fairly conservatively early got to about 50 miles a week and then did 50, 60, 70, 80 mm-hmm. over four weeks. This past week, I took a down week after that first 80-mile week and did 64 or 5 or something like that. And this week, I'm back to hitting 80 again. My plan is to basically do two up, one down. So two weeks around 80, one around 60, 65. And continue that cycle until it's time closer to run for the water to start to dial up the speed. Mm-hmm. But by my math, I can get about 10 weeks at 80 miles before mm-hmm. I think I have to maybe bring it down just a bit to sharpen up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as is normal when you're building mileage, you're sluggish. And, you know, it's funny. I was finishing my cool down today after our workout. And I had this analogy come to my mind about how I felt about this whole process. And bear with me on this because it may not make sense, but it, it's <laughs> crystal clear to me, which is that my fitness to me is sort of like an outgoing tide or it was. And I was sitting on the beach, you know, all day kind of watching that tide just recede and recede <laughs> and recede. And it felt like it might never come back. And, you know, if you've ever watched the tide recede, you kind of, you kind of are always asking yourself as you're watching that, well, when's it coming back? And sometimes you don't know. And you're kind of watching, and you think maybe it's coming back, but then you're like, no, it's, it's still going out. And then once it does start to come back, it takes a little while to recognize that. And then you start to see, okay, it came back that point where it was before. And, you know, the waves are then at some point within that process are definitely coming in. And then, you know, but it's not like a moment, a single moment that, you know, but that's kind of the way I feel with my fitness is that the tide, the tide's finally coming back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I know that, mm-hmm. you know, versus before it was still kind of a question mark. Um, so I've turned the corner on you know, feeling a little bit sluggish during the build. Obviously I've been doing some speed as you've seen as a part of that, which has generally been very conservative with the exception of that critical velocity workout. But (laughs) we can talk about that if you want. Um, Generally pretty conservative during the build, but this week getting back up to 80, feel really, really good. I'm actually taking this as an up week because I've coordinated my down weeks slightly differently with an upcoming trip so I'm a little bit off cycle from the group, but, um, but anyway, feeling good, going to hit 80 again this week, doing it all easy, of course, and doing the speed work that you've talked about. So for me, the questions are one, you know, how does that sound? Two, any tweaks that you would recommend as it relates to that cycle that I've laid out mileage wise? And what questions would you have for me to make sure I'm doing it right? Well, I'm going to start with questions first, because that's how I like to good. do it pretty Let's much. It. So. The first thing is, let's remind our listeners, so it's not really a question, it's sort of a restatement of what you're getting ready for, so that that they understand, um, sort of, we know we have got, you've already described and I know of, a short-term plan. I'm not really exactly crystal clear on your maybe a little bit longer-term plan, so I'd mm-hmm. like to hear that, and probably our listeners need to hear that. Sure. So, we talked about this on episode 23 and 24, but to give you the Cliff Notes version, the last year of my running, or year plus now, after a stress fracture that happened in Boston last year has been pretty spotty. And then I had an elbow fracture in March 
that led to the elbow surgery I just mentioned that caused me to have even more spotty training. And so now I'm kind of in this reset mode. And what Steve and I had talked about on that episode was getting back to the basics, rebuilding my base, my foundation with mostly easy mileage and targeting for me right now, a 10 mile race in Austin on November 5th called run for the water with the goal to break 60 minutes there for me. It's a hilly course and one that I've attempted to break 60 yet, I think six other times, and this will be the seventh attempt. <laughs> so it's one that I've been after for a while that I really, really want, but I haven't honestly to this point focused on that race exclusively. It's always been a build to something else, but this time it's my focus, at least for now. But we're going to do it in a way, or what we talked about was doing it in a way that's largely mileage focused with a little bit of fine tuning right, right towards the end, because as you said on one of those episodes, you didn't think the goal was actually that hard for me to get, but it's still a big one for me. So that's a little bit beyond that. You know, we talked about on that episode, I've, I've signed up for Houston Marathon. I've signed up for Austin Marathon. I will sign up for the Boston Marathon. I will race one of those as an A race. And after Run for the Water, I figured we'd figure out which one of those would be A. But I'm open to any of the three, honestly, at this point. I just want to focus on what I'm doing now, get through the 60, sub 60, cool. and then I, go from there. I knew those things, but I just wanted to make sure our listeners yep, got a little sure. bit of a replay on that. So um, <clears throat> key things, the, the first thing I think is what your current plan is great. The 80 miles a week um, over the, in, in, our, in the summer is always aggressive. So tell us a little bit about how you're feeling now that you've hit one 80 mile week and maybe how those three or four weeks progress. The 50, I'm not so worried about. That's more just shaking the, that's just shaking the rust off. But yep. as you hit 60, as you hit 70, as you hit 80, in 10, you know, jumps like that, they cost something. And you did them in the middle of a pretty hot and, and humid summer. So tell folks a little yeah. bit about what that was, what that was like. <clears throat> so for me, also as a way of background, I've done that before. It's, it's a place I've been a lot before. So it wasn't a mileage level that was new. But new in the last year, the last time I hit that level would have been before Boston last year, so March of 2016. And as I build, I'm generally, I feel pretty good typically during a build like that. And having done it before after various issues, I knew the build probably wasn't going to be hard. It would be once I hit that and kind of came down. So for me, I actually felt good 50, 60, 70, 80 where it started to hit me in the face was that 60, 65 mile week, mm -hmm. which often is true where I feel the worst on down weeks. The drown weeks yeah. are always So the hard. down week, about midweek, even though I wasn't doing as much that week, I, I sort of started to feel that fatigue, the malaise, started to question whether or not I should even do a 60 mile run that week, which had been my planned mm -hmm. long run. Um, and and so there's that. Now, I will say a couple of things. One is that I've done all of this mileage, re with the exception of one speed workout a week, really conservatively. I mean, for me, by way of reference, you know, 6.15, 6.20 is my marathon pace. I'm running all of these runs at 8.20, 8.30s for the most part, sometimes slower on a day where I'm doing doubles because I do that twice a week to get to 80. And those runs could be 9.30s, 10-minute miles, just enough to loosen the legs up for the next day. So super conservative. But the thing I've had to really jump back on that we talked about on our summer training episode was the hydration. Mm -hmm. And I noticed maybe I was being a little lax on that 
through the down week. And so getting back on that with my twice daily scratch servings, as I talked about on that episode, has kind of given me life back. I also got a massage early this week, recognizing that it was time for one of those. And as that was happening very painfully, I realized I needed to make sure I did that regularly, you know, every three weeks or so during this cycle, because that after coming off that, I felt much better. But as of today, you know, we did that light speed work that this morning, the light 200s with plenty of rest. That felt amazing. Kind mm-hmm. of gave life back to my legs. I finished 12 miles for the day this morning, mm-hmm. you know, with only about four and a half or so after that workout yep. was done. So I added about eight. I felt great. I felt like I could do more. So I'm starting to feel good again, but obviously want to be conservative. The other thing I want to mention is that, you know, we're talking about 60, 70, 80. We're talking about numbers that are just numbers. There's no magic in that number and everybody's number is going to be different. Some people are going to be doing 30, 35, 40, and those will be causing the same kind of thing. So we're not necessarily talking about a certain mileage level here. It's just the concepts. But what we are talking about is that Chris made a pretty aggressive ramp up one that many people wouldn't have confidence in and a whole lot of people, maybe some of our listeners are actually questioning whether that's intelligent or not, especially given the fact that you've had, you came off a a pretty significant stress injury and then you've just had dumb bad luck, right? So um, I think it's important for me to address at least that first part of uh, someone might say, well, coach, how are you letting them go more than a, that seems to be a more than 10% increase, a a lot more, a pretty aggressive way of doing it. I want to remind everybody, Chris has been doing this for a good long time. And Chris also is an athlete that I trust listens to his body. And most importantly, Chris stated it himself, he's running these long run, these easy runs really easy. I know he's running with other folks, so he's having fun. He's, he's talking during the context of his runs, talking about anything and everything. And so therefore, he's not running at you know 645 per mile pace and putting himself in, in, in harm's way. So I think that that is the reasons why an athlete, a coach like myself feels comfortable with my athlete ramping up. Uh, as I said, I, I'm also really supremely confident that Chris will adjust if he needs to, and he's got me available to give him suggestions if things go wrong. And really, that's the way a relationship with a coach and an athlete really should be early on in a cycle like this, because the coach could be over. I, will, I want to under direct you early on so that we're able to over direct or direct appropriately at, at when we get closer to your race, because you're going to need me to get the mojo up as you're feeling your mojo up and give you the kind of workouts and believe in you that you're going to be able to achieve them right now. If I believe in you, it'll be too much. It'll be, it'll, it'll cook you. So I think it's really important for our listeners to hear that. Another thing is, is Chris is only doing one quality session a week. So he's not getting out and jumping in whatever track sessions available. He also is self-adjusting his quality workouts as he's out there, making an objective, knowing what he wants to get accomplished for that day with, an, with a basic range, an idea of what he wants to do, but not being too, too aggressive with it and knows that he can make adjustments. Um, tell us a little bit about your Thursday workout because we do a kind of a strange workout called a critical velocity um, interval session. And it's basically four times one and a half miles with a really short rest. But the pace is done at a rather unusual pace. It's called, we call it critical velocity. I got it from a coach uh, many years ago. And it, it doesn't really check a f- true physiological box off, but it, it really does allow people to run threshold pace a little bit faster than threshold pace and get close to VO2 without doing too much damage. But it's kind of a tough workout, isn't it? Well, especially in our heat. So last Thursday, we did a workout. It was supposed to be three times. No, four times one and a half miles at critical velocity on a fairly hilly loop. Mm-hmm. Starts downhill, but finished mostly uphill. 
and I went into that workout. Well, basically, I think this is a good example of making an adjustment. And I didn't talk to you about it in the moment, but I knew you would support me. But it was a combination of things where tough workout, really hot day, particularly particularly hot, particularly humid, no wind. And the heat, for whatever reason, that day was affecting me. I was in the middle of that down week that I talked about where I started to feel a little bit sluggish. The legs were just kind of tired and fatigued. Felt like they didn't have the power that they normally would have. And so I and I started that workout maybe slightly harder than I should have running with a couple of people in the group that I sometimes run with that I've recently been able to hang with in workouts without getting over my skis. But <clears throat> on this day, I got over my skis and did the first my paces were fine. I did I did them fairly consistently, but by the third one of four, I was working way too hard and I was getting a little wobbly with the form. Honestly, feeling a little dizzy, you know, I was clearly overheating a little bit, feeling a little dizzy with that. So I got to the end of the third one and called my, called the workout myself, knowing that if I went out for a fourth one, it would be potentially dangerous in a lot of different ways from injuring myself to getting dizzy and falling over and hurting my other elbow or something like that. So, so I made the decision to cut it short and just jog back easily. And so that's part of what you have to do is listen yep. to your body and make those adjustments. And in that case, I probably should have checked in with you about it. But, but what would I have but said? But I knew the answer. You already told me to do what I did. Yeah. So anyway, um, so that's where we are. And so the next, the next things that are crucial and critical that you need to pay attention to, one of them you've already gotten on. The first thing I would have said to you, what supplemental training are you doing? Where are you at with your supplementals? There's a tendency as you're building your base up to sort of forget those things. I, I know you, I know you're not, but you were missing one of them, which was a massage, which yeah. is part of training, which yeah. is an essential piece of doing the work. So you've got that back in the system and you, and you, you got a, an immediate response from doing that work to make you realize yeah. you needed to do it more. It was a good it. reminder. The thing for me that's been challenging a little bit in this build is that my elbow is still rehabbing. So I've been spending a fair amount of time on physical therapy with my elbow, which has taken away the time that I have to work on my legs. And so at times during this build, I had been doing work there that I probably should have been doing on my legs. I've gotten to a point now where that's rebalanced and I've added to my work, the rolling, the kind of mobility stuff that, that I need to do, you know, my left ankle, left calf, right hip, right quad tend to be my problems areas. So I've, I've added the work to work on those things that I'm normally main, maintaining. I haven't yet layered in the strength stuff mm -hmm. that we've talked about. I have a plan to, but I wanted to get to a steady uh, level on my mileage first before I added that in. But so far I am doing the mobility, the rolling and stuff that I had been doing before. And I feel good about where I am. You know, I also get our adjustments on Thursdays from mm -hmm. Peter and Mondo Sports, who is great to come out and work with us. And so I've been doing that, of course, regularly as well. So the final piece of the puzzle here, Chris, because we could go on all day talking about this, we won't get to our guest, is the key thing you need to do now is make sure that you've got your pace ranges set. So your you should base everything on the most on the most recent goal time that you have, which is 60 minutes on a hilly 10K course. I mean, a 10-mile course. You know this course really well. You've done it seven times, so you can make the adjustment that you think is necessary. In this course, knowing it, my suggestion is 30 seconds to a minute. 
meaning that you would be shooting for a 59.30 or a 59-minute time for a 10-miler because that course is so difficult. You'd want to make those adjustments. So you want to run th write that time down as your goal time, and then you want to write down a time that would be approximately about two minutes, um, a finish time that would be about one to two minutes slower than that. Probably in your case, one minute slower, um, and then, but maybe one and a half since you're really coming back from injury. And then another, another time, so that would be like 59, so 60, 30, and then I would ask you to probably do another one at maybe like 62 minutes and write down the goal times for 5K pace work, 10K pace work, half marathon work, and marathon work, and have those ranges. So now Chris is going to say, if I say we're going to do eight times an 800, we're going to do it at 10K paces, Chris knows, okay, the 59-minute, is the fastest he should run in that workout for that 10K sessions, an equivalent time. And then he would want not want to run too much slower than 62 minutes if he could manage it. So Chris has now got a range. When I talk with marathoners, I do those in five-mile jumps. So it's like someone who's a 240, five-minute, five five someone who's, five, who's shooting for a 240 marathon, they would write down 240, 245, 250, and they would work in those ranges. And it's really important as folks are coming back from injury and back into it, that they give themselves a, that range. There's a tendency in your head to start really being negative when you're not able to hit workouts, especially as you're coming back. And you want to know that it is part of your prescription to run the slower paces. And it's okay if you hit those times. That's important to get started soon so you don't get too much loosey-goosiness because if we're too loosey-goosey with just going by feel and by everything else, it, you know, November 5th is going to come up on us really quick. And we want to make sure that we've got times that we're working towards something but make sure there's some flexibility to that. Otherwise, you're in danger of either running too fast and getting yourself too far in front of your skis or running too slow and not having enough push. And when the time comes to push, we'll have problems at that point. That makes sense. One, the only other question I would have, and then we'll turn to our discussion with John, is any thoughts on when I make that transition and maybe cut back the mileage a little bit ramp up the speed work a little bit more as it relates to the November 5th race? Like when should I kind of make the switch? So my suggestion would be to try, my first suggestion would be time frame. We want to be, we want about six, six weeks. So we want six weeks of targeted work towards that goal. Six weeks is also a amount of time you can kind of just sort of get up enough, but not get up too much. Mm -hmm. A month, you can also pull it off. I would give you a month if you were not, hadn't been, down for so long if you hadn't been injured without a race for so long we need a little bit more of push and a little bit more of hard race workouts and in fact i'm not sure what your plans are from a racing perspective but if it's possible to jump in a low-key race that could be an advantage as well just so you kind of get over that because i know what's going to happen on that race day is you're going to have a lot of pressure on yourself and you've also talked about this with a lot of other people so a lot of other people <laughs> know and you've been fighting this monkey you've been going after this this time for a while so it might be good to get a number pinned on your chest get your shoes set get yourself in a position to think about that um and then also the other thing is is that but i would i would really focus on lowering your long run mileage and so maybe i dropped to maybe looking at is 80 the right number? Maybe 75 is the right number without trying to push that long run too far. Because if we're trying to push that long run too far, um, I'm worried that uh, we don't have a marathon right around the corner. And I don't really need um, more than a 20-mile run at any point. You know, we probably need a couple, we need about 20 in there somewhere at some point in this phase. But be wary of just chasing that long run each and every yeah, you know, getting getting it to eighteen and then twenty and then twenty two and then twenty four, that will affect your ability to be 
sharp enough to turn over with the work we want to do for a 10 mile race. My, just on that quickly is my aspiration is to get to 80 miles with an 18 mile long run. Yep. So I, I did, I've done a 20, but I, don't have to do that i don't think and i agree with you just remind be reminded now this is what our, this is where the devil's advocate comes in it says okay then we might need to look at houston because we are then going to have to do some 20s more sure. 20s and and so you look at houston and just say will i have enough time to get a couple of 20 plus mile runs and if you know if i if my whole focus is on that 10 miler i don't want any 20 mile runs but if I am, but I'm also thinking, as a coach does, what do I have down the line? And I've got to do work now to be prepped for that race down the line. So it's important to, for Chris to be thinking about, all right, so maybe Houston, maybe I should start looking at Houston more along the lines as a, 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 a run that I have some object, a race I have some objectives with, or I'm going to low, I'll be a little more low key with my race result, or a variety of other things. But just knowing that it probably doesn't have quite the number of long runs at the appropriate paces to have a really big pop at that first race. Because Houston being the second or third week in, in, in July, January might make it a bit hard to do that. The other thing I'll say is I am racing Zoka Relays, as I like to do. That's Got a good. Team, team Rogue team for that. So that's this Friday after Labor Day. And then I will be doing the five-miler, which is about a month out from Run for the Water. So I think, I think we're good on the, the pre-race experiences before the big day. So thank you, Steve. You bet. There you go. Hopefully we didn't bore anyone while I got my... <laughs> selfish needs covered there with my coach athlete relationship going i enjoyed it okay so john enjoyed it he, I, I noticed he was making some it. notes he might have he might have questions for me i don't know <laughs> but let's definitely turn to our main topic again bringing john armbrust into this conversation john i'll just give a quick inter, inter, intro and then i'll turn it to you steve to kind of do a proper intro but john has now been training us training with us since about when march or so. march yeah. yeah so a little bit earlier this year and has, has really only in the last couple of years two to three years gotten into running at the at this kind of marathon and ultra marathon level so we're bringing him on to talk about that and his experience at the comrades marathon which we've already talked about on this episode but he's also a part-time poker player on the side so there's some interesting poker and running and mind stuff that we're going to get to as we go but there's also a lot of other interesting things along the way. So Steve, I'll turn it to you a little bit more intro since you're his coach and then I'll let you ask the first question. Sure. I won't give the typical introduction cause John and I haven't gone through, I know you went to Duke university, right? Correct. Um, and I don't, I don't, I, and I also know that you're really, really involved in, in education at this point to the point where you're, uh, is it you're an owner of a of a of a charter school or um, more of a superintendent executive director yes. or a nonprofit? So there is no owner of it. Oh, that's yeah, right. I yeah. founded a, a school on the east side called Austin Achieve, and we've had a really great track record of success so far. Cool. And you're tell us your age. Your how old you are? Uh, Thirty six. Awesome. So, and you're you just started running about how many years ago? Uh, about three years ago now. Um, I just got back into it as part of well. Honestly, the original reason I probably got back into it started as a weight loss challenge with my dad. Uh, mm-hmm. I put on a few extra pounds, and he has always had a few of those pounds, and, and we decided to have a contest to see who could lose the most weight, and it ended up with me becoming a runner and very active. Did who won? You, did you won? Yeah. So, um, so it started, we were having lunch one day, and I realized, I don't know why we were talking about our weight, but I, I told him what I weighed, and I, that day, I was one pound more than him, and he's always been, a, we'll just call him a little bit round, uh, not 
totally heavy, but round. So I was like, how is this possible? So we, <laughs> we made a bet and we each lost 15 pounds in a few weeks. And then he went and lost another 15 pounds. I was like, oh no, my dad's way ahead <laughs> of me now. So I was like, this is game on. So I eventually crushed him. It took me about nine months to, to lose 70 pounds and leave him wow. in the dust. Wow. 70 pounds. Yeah. That's wow. huge. We won't ask why I put on all that weight. <laughs> <laughs> so... Tell us a little bit about your running back. I mean, you're not your running background because you don't have a whole lot of it, but your athletic background. So you, you got involved losing weight, but did you have a sports background at all? Did you feel comfortable? Yeah, I was definitely active in middle and high school. I, I ran quite a bit. I ran track through eighth grade, but frankly, didn't like my coach too much. So I kind of lost the, the drive for it. And I kind of found golf as my competitive outlet. And then eventually uh, poker, as we'll, we'll discuss. Not, <laughs> not quite a sport, but it was on ESPN. <laughs> so it kind of counts. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you a question. Is it a game or a sport? But we'll leave that one for a little bit later. But um, so tell us also a little bit about the things that made you decide three years ago, okay, it, was, it was obviously the weight loss, but then what made you stick with it? What, what is it about the sport of running that sort of hooked you and tell us a little bit more about what how big a hook that is because you went from zero to basically a 60 mile race in um a couple years a couple years yeah kind of nuts kind of crazy (laughs) um i i'm definitely very competitive and and the thing one thing uh, of many that i love about running is i mean it's it's time so i have a a one mile loop around my my house a four mile seven mile and i've got my my prs and all my my courses so that's how i kind of got going into it uh but I'm also kind of a what's next individual. So I like I got signed for a marathon. And then eventually after getting getting that done, I was like, well, what's next? And, and that's why I, I went for an Ironman. And what's next? As we'll get into, uh, I had to do the ultra. I mean, that was <laughs> obviously what's next in the ladder. <laughs> Where so, did you start from a marathon perspective? Was Austin your first? Yeah, Austin, uh, last 18 months ago was my, my first marathon. So it took me about a year and a half to, to get to completion of a, my first marathon. So, um, yeah, it took me another year to get to the first ultra. And at that point, were you self-coach kind of self-coach stuff? pretty much? I got some tips from, from you. You might recall uh, that, that, that chart. That was really <laughs> helpful. I, I I'm inclined to be kind of like you data analytical. So it's kind of fun having a, a not so data driven <laughs> coach. Um, but yeah, that was the first. And then I did a few more, um, as, as a self-coached athlete for the most part. Uh, but then I was in the market for, for a running group, um, well, around March or so. And, um, well, I tried out a different running group, um, and it was kind of an interesting experience. I went for a long run with them on a Saturday, and I, I, we basically stopped at the, the water stop, and we were there for, like, two, three minutes. Everybody was just kind of, like, relaxed. I was like, man, like, I'm, I'm here to, like, work. Like, this is, <laughs> this, I mean, I, I get the social aspects really important to, to group running, but they just, I'm not going to name them by name, but they felt <laughs> a little bit soft. I was like, I, I want somebody who's going to kick my butt. Uh, and I'd heard positive things about uh, Rogue's ability to push you and grow runners. So I, I tried uh, Steve's group out and been thrilled with it so far. Yeah, it's a big jump. Um, probably not one that we would recommend for everybody to go from three, three years into Team Rogue. But you've also been able to manage it really well. And one of the things that we did when we sat down is we talked about your background, where your volume was, where your goals were. And it was at that point in time that you'd said to me, well, I want to do this crazy thing. And so tell folks what this crazy thing that how, how you came to thinking that that race was the race, because it, it wasn't some sort of big shining light long term dream. It was a, a bit of a oh, lark, correct? For sure. Yeah, I was in the market for an ultra marathon because that was what's next. But frankly, I, I again, being so new to this, I didn't really know what ultra to really target. Uh, and I was listening to a Runner's World podcast, and Bart Yasso was, was being interviewed, and like, oh, what's the, the greatest race you've ever done? And he, his answer is really compelling. It's like, all due respect to Boston, 
comrades is it i was like what what, what is comrades so <laughs> I, I went and got on my computer about 10 minutes later and started doing the research and it was november 29th of last year and comrades you have till november 30th or the first 20,000 people to sign up and then and then they shut it down and they post the number of the number of registrants and that day i looked at it, it was like 19,500 and something and then i hit refresh on the website and 20 minutes later it's like 19,600 i was like oh <laughs> I gotta sign up for this right now. So. You, you can say it, by the way. We're, we're, oh, we're, we're okay. E-rated yeah, on yeah, we're explicit. Oh, we're, yeah. Very good. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I the first day I heard about comrades, I signed up for it. So it's a little, little bit of crazy. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> what, one of the things. What I, drew you to it? Uh, it, you know, it's the largest uh, ultra in the world and the longest running ultra in the world. And the more I read online, it just well, from what I gathered from Bart's stories, just the culture behind it, and and I mean it exceeded all expectations I had going into it. Uh, just a magical experience. So, I don't know, it just felt like the right, I mean, I do have interest in running longer ultras, but uh, Comrades is roughly uh, 89K or so, or 87K this year. They changed the course. That's mm -hmm. like 54-ish miles. Mm -hmm. So those hundreds are still out there for me to achieve later. And Comrades is a road race. It is a Correct. road race, and it's point to point. Uh, they have the, the up year and the down year. You start in an up year on the coast in Durban, and you go inland to Pete's Metersburg. Apologies to South Africans. I know I'm mispronouncing that. <laughs> and then they flip the course in, in the down years, and, and you go in reverse. And uh, you were an uphill year this year, correct? Yes, yeah, 6,000 feet of elevation over the... So talk a little bit about your prep for the race. So you, you in, a, in April you, or March, you joined us. Um, and tell folks a little bit about what we did, what what we did together, and then what you did on your own in order to be ready for that race, or to get as ready as you could. Yeah, I mean, the main thing was just uh, ramping up the miles, uh, and I've heard y'all speak a lot about the just having uh, the base of miles uh, under your belt. Because I got to to my first few marathons having never really done more than thirty to forty miles in a week, so the fifty to seventy was was new territory to me. Uh, and I went west to the hills and just killed myself running up and down Mount Bunnell uh, quite a number of times. <laughs> and it's so funny. I met some people from Houston at Comrades. Like, I was like, guys, how, how do you all train? And like one of these guys, he's like, oh, I'm so lucky. I, I live near a 12-story parking garage, and I get to go up and down that all day. I'm like, oh, man, your life sucks. Um, I've, but been there, I've been there living in Houston. That's the only place to find hills. Yeah, but so we're, we're very fortunate to have hills uh, in Austin. But it's also kind of unfortunate that, that only two people from Austin ran comrades this year. So this, this also serves as a call out to the Austin running community. I mean, we, we are an awesome running town, and I, I would love to see more Austinites uh, join me next year. So you also, one of the things we did was you, we do our long runs at Rogue on Saturdays and you're also doing basically back-to-back -back runs, correct? And yeah. so talk a little bit about what that experience was like, what, yeah. what, how, how you framed that and then how, how, how it worked for you. Yeah. I remember you mentioning really early on the importance of just doing long back-to-backs. Um, you know, I think when you're in a beginning uh, marathon training guide, you're doing roughly four runs a week and only one long run, but that Sunday run. Uh, after doing a long Saturday with, with the group, uh, I think was probably the most important growth I was doing. And also, I mean, frankly, you learn to run a little bit slower. I mean, when I first trained on my own, I was just trying to go as fast as I could every run I did. And that was just, I mean, ended up getting a little injured from that. And so I kind of learned how to just build the miles and, and learn how to pace myself for, for ultra distance and not worry as much about time. Let's talk about the race itself. First of all, give us a little like preview before you're flying to South Africa. Have you, had you been before? I actually was lucky enough to have gone a couple okay. of years ago, but I hadn't been to Durban before. So I, they, they do this deal where you can preview the course the day before. So I, I did a little uh, bus tour, and, and it starts with hills, and then it goes uphill, and then there's <laughs> more hills, 
and there's one stretch that's flat for about half a mile, and then it goes up more hills. So <laughs> it's it's a pretty cool course. How how does that course compare to a hill in Austin? What are the what's the grade like? Uh, it's it's a lot like climbing Mount Bennell, but just keep going about five or six times is is one of their they have five named hills and and it's yeah I'd say about equivalent five Mount Bennells string together. So those of you who don't live in Austin, it's a, a really I don't know the grade, but it's, it's a legit hill. It's a real hill. Yeah, it's <laughs> legit. Yeah, for a really long time. And so as in that preview, did you just were you shitting your pants? Were you no. like you, you, were you like oh my god, what did I get myself into? Oh, absolutely not. Quite the opposite. I think one thing that I love about running and a lot of the fellow roguesters is you love to uh, push yourself and and it's kind of a self discovery. Running, I, I want to find that limit uh, and what I am capable of. So seeing those hills, like. Yeah. You knew you were going to have I it. am in for pain, and I am excited <laughs> to be in for pain. Are they, how did they do packet pickup? What's the other pre-race rituals like there? Because I, I sometimes hear funny stories from international races on packet pickups and how, any, any rituals they might have before the race. Yeah, they, they have, it's like in a big convention center. They do an extraordinary job catering to international runners and an even better job catering to first-time runners. So as a first-timer, we get there, and, and we got to have like this private coffee with these comrades legends, I guess you could say. This one guy was literally going for his 45th run, which tied the record that year. He just, it was just me, and I chatted with him for like 15 minutes, got all his tips on it. And then there's one guy who's won comrades, I think, nine or ten times, and he also was there just chit-chatting. So it's a pretty well-organized, well-run uh, race that, in my opinion, without a doubt, needs to be bucket list race. I think Boston is up there. I think comrades is up there. And if you're a triathlete, I'd have to put Kona in, in getting there as, as the three. Again, I'm still new and still learning, but those are my three by far. Yeah, so the race itself... Right. The gun goes off. What was your race plan going in? You had a race plan, I'm sure, of some sort. And how did the race, did the race play out the way your plan was <laughs> was set for? Yeah, based on my general expertise in running, I, I figured I could run a sub nine, which um, they, they do a really clever job of, of marketing, frankly, like a sub like seven gets you one kind of medal, a sub nine gets you a different kind of medal. It's like, Based on where I was at with my marathon time, that was a reasonable target. And they gave you, uh, there's a calculator that's available on their website, right? Or, or a book that you read, or there was a, yeah. a, a, a program that you followed to help you. There's a program online, um, and then the general rule of thumb for, for future comrades, runners, is your marathon um, PR times two and a half-ish. We round that up just a hair, so I, I'm currently a 317. So do the math. I, mm-hmm. I should have been able to post something in the eights, but again, the the... I've never run more than really 50 to 70 miles in a week, except during the training for comrades. So who knows if I was going to blow up or not. Uh, so the plan was to, to go at that kind of nine, sub, sub nine pace. And first 80K were, were beautiful. Uh, I was loving every second of it. Uh, and, and the race is 87K. And the last 7K were uh, uh, a very painful, rewarding, exhilarating experience. I mean, my quads just totally gave out. I, I ran as far as my body would run that day. <laughs> and I, I love the 7K just as much as the first. I mean, I even took, a, I had my phone with me and, and took a selfie with 1K to go. I mean, I'm, I'm starting to tear up from kind of the mixture of pain and, and, and exhilaration. <laughs> it's like, I ran this to kind of find my brink and I can, I wanted to remember what the brink looks like. <laughs> <laughs> there you were. <laughs> there I was. It, it, that's not going to be my Facebook profile pick anytime soon, but it's. It, <laughs> it's so interesting to me, you know, Chris, as we talk about the prep, we spend so much time talking about marathon, you know, preparation that it, is the wall really a wall? Because John wasn't prepped for that race distance. I mean, he had done great training, but there's no way you could actually have pre- prepared 
in the short time that you had, the short window that you had, and the and your le- relative level of inex- of non-experience, not having any experience, yet you were able to get 80k through. So it's almost like what happens? Is there a is there a threshold where the brain just says, "Okay, that's as far as you can go," or is it physiological? Not not saying that you weren't prepared because you certainly I watched I I looked at your schedule, we went through it. You did everything you could possibly do, but it, you'd set an aggressive goal. Number one. And yep. number two, you you chased that goal from the gun. You stayed on those paces. You you were really consistent with those paces because they came up in every K came up at a at a at like was six it? six even. Yeah. yeah so yeah. you were able to see all the time where you were at. Um and I don't know, it's just in, super intriguing to me to figure out, okay, is John's experience your breaking down, was that physiological or psychological? Not not you it, you probably have an opinion, but I know that you're not going to be a trustworthy narrator in this regard. <laughs> so you could try to be, but you probably are. What's your experience? Do you feel like, I mean, you know, physiologically you were shot, right? I certainly think so. I, I think my mind is But is my strong, wonder but is, is there a governor that shuts you down? And, and, and it's just so convenient how it lines up with the marathon. So well, here, here's my, my proof yes. point is if somebody had a million dollars and said, if you can run 100 yards, I'll give you this million dollars. I don't think I could have run a hundred yards. Um, I, I feel rather confident on that. But I think that that's the experience of many people who fall apart in a marathon yeah. that's run well. You know, I do think you should be commended, and and I truly believe I was super excited for your time. I was I was I was hesitant that you were going to be able to get nine just because it was completely unknown. But you proved to me as your coach that I can throw things at John and he'll. He'll he'll appro- he'll plan. He'll do the things he needs to do, and he'll stick to his plan, which is super exciting as a coach. But also puts you in danger of having those really fall apart experiences because you're aggressive. That's fair. Uh, and my favorite <laughs> recap. I'll never forget your email back to me. He's like, "Man, I thought you were gonna fall apart a lot earlier, huh?" <laughs> Thanks, coach. <laughs> Glad Back, I didn't. Backhanded compliment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't this know. Is our inspiring coach here. <laughs> <laughs> well, did you face any mental demons, or were they all physical demons? Uh, I mean, they go hand in hand. I mean, you have to at some point tell your body to keep going. Um, and, and you know, when I got through halfway, I mean, that was, you know. Uh, more than a marathon distance and, and I had never really run other than one final training run more than 30 miles. It's like, oh, I now have to go run 27 more of these miles and this is like a new long distance for me. So there were a couple of points where I had to like kind of talk my way into what I needed to do. Um, but generally, I'd say my body broke down before my, my mind was breaking down. But you never felt like quitting there was never the brink like that. I mean, if you fly halfway around the world to do an <laughs> event, you kind of have a little extra motivation. And that actually, that went through my head around 70K. I could feel the wheels coming off a little bit. And I, I, I it was kind of like, fuck it. Like I, I got, I didn't fly to South Africa <laughs> to give up at 70K. So if it had been an, a nice long run here in the States, I probably would have slowed down <laughs> there. But uh, the, the fact that I was in South Africa... Uh, I got another 10K in before I just really hit the brink. Talk about the cultural experience of the race. From what I understand, just like Boston in a lot of ways, everybody comes yeah. out to support it. It's, a, it's an event that extends beyond those just running. How did you experience that? Yeah, I'd say it's more than just an event. It feels like a national holiday over there. I think that somebody's told me there's something uh, along the lines. 50 million people live in South Africa, and the viewership of Comrades is about 10 million. So it's a wow. pretty... I mean, everybody pays attention to comrades. Uh, and it also, 
And it's kind of a weird way to describe it. It's almost like the everyman's ultra marathon, if that is even possible. But every single, so I wore all my comrades' gear after the race, and even was totally cheesed out and wore my little medal around for a couple of days. <laughs> I was proud of that thing. Um, and every single person came up to me and had a comrade story. Either they were going to do it, or they had done, or their wife or brother had done it. But everyone in that country had a connection to this race. And the other really epic thing of comrades, just to give you, um, you know, a nice picture of it. Uh, is that at the end of the race, I mean, half there's a 12-hour hard cutoff time, and they literally shut the gate, and you cannot finish. So in America, it's, we're all about, you know, the completion, you know, trophy or whatever, and we let people come in after until they're still coming in, and, and everyone can walk at home. No, they, they will shut it off, and you finish in this huge stadium. So, again, half the field's finishing right at 11 hours. So everyone's there. They're friends. You got 30,000, 40,000 people in the stadium. You got 10 million people watching online. And it's just like, oh, man, it's kind of sadistic. It's like, who's going to be the person as the, you know, it's like 1159, <laughs> the, the last person to <laughs> not finish. It is really an unbelievable and very unique uh, finish to a race, uh, which, I mean, the spirit of comrades actually started as a, as a, a commemoration of, of World War I vets. And the guy who started it, he'd done like some 3,000 mile death march or something. He's like, I need to create a race that helps the everyday man understand what we went through uh, in World War One. So that's kind of the origination of Comrade. So there, there is a sadistic element that people cherish and appreciate about the event. So what was your the day the day after? How was your body? How did how did it how did it handle? And and what did you do anything? That after the race to get yourself prepared for that, or did you say it's just going to be what it is? I actually got my first massage ever, and I'm so <laughs> glad I did. I, I've never yeah, been. I highly recommend it. Yeah, <laughs> it was really amazing. But I, I tried to just walk it off and, and walk over to the the tent to grab a grab a, a beer. Uh, but I was starting to limp around, like oh, we need to take you in, and, and so I basically got a 30, 40 minute massage by this dude in South Africa. It was incredible. So I actually didn't hurt quite as much as I thought the next day and just made sure to stretch it out. I went for a hike the next day and was forced to actually run a couple of days later. Uh, I would have preferred to take a, uh, I, I barely made a connection in the Qatar airport and so I had to sprint <laughs> through the Qatar airport for about 15 <laughs> minutes to make a flight. So that was kind of brutal. Um, so when your flight delays on the line, you can run. <laughs> yes. I did not want to get stuck in Qatar, um, especially crazy political things going on at the time. So, you earned a bronze medal. You had mentioned that they have this categorization. Nine hours to 11 hours earns a bronze medal. Yeah. If you'd gotten under nine, between 7.30 and 9, they, they have what they call the Bill Rowan medal, which is a bronze medal with a silver ring in it. How do you feel about missing that sub nine? Are you going back? What's next for you and comrades? Yeah, and the the sub nine is a pretty cool uh, goal because the guy Bill Rowan is the guy who won the very first comrades in eight fifty nine. So again, that was ninety years ago, and and there wasn't it was not a paved road. It's a different experience, to, but people say you complete it in the same time that a winner did. That uh, was kind of a fun target. But uh, within an hour of finishing the race and just experience the culture of the race, I was fully committed to coming back. I was telling all the people I'd met down there. It's like, I, I am back. And they're like, really? Like you're committed that early? I'm like, hell yeah, this is going to be, this is going to be great. Uh, and they do a clever thing too. They give, uh, you can only do this once, uh, but they give away back to back. If you do the up and the down and you can only get it the first two years. So you can't do it once and then come back later for back to back. So marketing has suckered me in as well. <laughs> so you have to do, I have to go back the to down, down year, the down do. year, which from, well, from what our, our, 
knowledge is that the down years are tougher in a lot of ways on those quads. Yeah, so it'll be interesting. It, I'll have to do off the talk to coach here about how I can work uh, towards being prepared for that. Because frankly, I think I benefited a lot for it being an up year. I think I would have totally fallen apart earlier in a down year. But I also have to represent Austin. I mean, the other Austinite who did it told me she she had done her back to back. She's not going back next year. So as of now, I'm the only Austinite committed. So this is a, a if any Austinite hears this and wants to go, I will cover your registration fee. Just, Woo, just contact wow. me. <laughs> uh, wow, that's a big deal. Yeah, <laughs> we need to represent. That's awesome. Um, so what will you do differently in your preparation? Uh, or what will you, because is there, I, obviously you're going to descend, and obviously we'll have some discussions about that. But do you feel like the preparation that you did was as good as you could have done to be ready for it? Or th- hindsight being 2020, do you look back and say, I wish I had done maybe this or this. Give us a little bit. I, I love these questions about figuring out how people figure out what they might have been able to do differently. So what could you have done differently, do you feel like, and which of those things will you do differently in your prep for next year? Yeah, I'd say building up the to 50 to 70-mile base undoubtedly would have helped a lot if I got to that volume earlier. Um, but just when I signed up for Comrades, I mean, I, I kind of started ramping up right then, so I just didn't have the opportunity. So maybe learn of the race earlier and sign up earlier uh, <laughs> and build up earlier. I think would be the big ones in, in yeah, connecting, frankly, with, with you and Rogue earlier because, I mean, mm-hmm. we got connected. I was already mid-training program for it, so it was a little, I mean, you definitely added value, but it was still kind of late in the process. And you've got a, when you came to see me, um, you didn't sell me on Comrades. Right, we're talking with you about this. We really only—I remember—I think guffawing or laughing or shooting snot through my nose and, and laughter at your, <laughs> at your, you, you deciding to do this crazy race because I have been in this sport for a long time and I know all about. I've never done it, but I know how difficult the race it is. But you sold me on the fact that you wanted to run a fast marathon. So, and you had a specific goals for those marathons. So tell us what's next for you from from the running side, um, and and how that's played in because that's how you suckered me into getting. Letting really? me be in your group? Correct, oh, exactly. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I as already mentioned, Boston is definitely a dream. And for my age group, you got to be a sub, well, 310 plus the buffer. So probably 305-ish is, mm-hmm. is probably a good target. And again, more or less trained on my own and never had specific running specialists coaching me. Uh, I've worked with somebody who does some try work, and she's great, uh, but never really had an expert coach. So kind of want to see what I can do to, to get to Boston and also again, listening to this podcast, just understanding the importance of setting a command performance way in advance. So I, I think at the time was February, March, I was starting to circle um, CIM, mm-hmm. California International Marathon in December. So hopefully that's enough time for you to get, oh, me, yeah. you're, you've, get me done. You're, what I love to work with athletes that have the things between the ears. So you've got what it takes between the ears. And the physiological part is um, you've run fast enough. I love to... It, it, You've run fast enough to make that goal reasonable already, and you've been um, you were exceedingly consistent in your prep for comrades. You've since been doing other things, which we'll talk about a little bit. But you've been you've been running still, but you haven't been doing set training. I haven't seen you run and since you let since you come back yeah, from comrades. Pretty, but I saw you today. You were here for this morning. Yeah, summer but, travels. Uh, nuts. But I'm sure that you're going to be able to get to where you need to be physiologically, and I'm pretty confident psychologically. Of course, as we know, it's not a done deal. We don't give you the finish line medal before you start, but I'm confident that if you can stay healthy, we're going to be able to get there. 
Well, good. Mm-hmm. I, I hope so. Because you, you, I think y'all uh, put me in the right group. I, I know y'all were kind of emailing as to, it's like the magic sorting hat of Harry Potter. Like, which, <laughs> where is he in Gryffindor or what? <laughs> and they put me in the Tuesday, Thursday group. And I remember showing up. You're like, all right, this guy, Chris, he, he runs a 316. Oh, that's a 310. Oh, she's like a 255. I'm like, yeah. okay, I'm a 317. Like, yeah. this group is going to kick my ass. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. <laughs> we will test you for sure. So let's transition to talk about poker. Because we want to bring the mental elements you, you take to the poker table also into a discussion on running and the mental side of running, which we've talked about in our series on mental training. Talk about how you got into poker and at what level you got before you decided to move to Austin and start a charter school. Yeah, so I got started playing poker with high school buddies um, 10, 15, 17 years ago now. Um, and we were just doing the $5 buy-in, nothing special. And one summer, I, we basically played all summer, and I tracked my results as a, a data-driven guy would. And at the end of the summer, I had beaten my friends um, 22 times in a row, like come out ahead 22 <laughs> times in a row. And my, my goal every time when you're doing $5 buying is just to win lunch money the next day. So if I could earn Chipotle, I was, I was thrilled. Uh, but at the end of the summer, I had accumulated 200 bucks of profits. And, and that was, uh, for those who are my age, there's online poker was on TV. Uh, or poker was on TV for the first time on ESPN, and, and there's an online poker boom. So I took 200 bucks. And I tried online poker one time. This is going to be my one experience doing this. Uh, and I entered a tournament online, won the very first tournament I played for like 1500 bucks. I was like, that's cool, but it was just luck. So I entered one more tournament. This is going to be the last time I do this. Won the second tournament for another like 1500 bucks. So, I, you know, I'm like 21 years old and just won like three grand in, in an hour or a couple hours, a couple days, I guess. Um, and that kind of started it. And eventually I, I threw online poker, qualified for the World Series of Poker main events uh, and, and been going every summer and play a handful of tournaments and play the main event every year, which is big. I'll explain more, I guess, as part of this. Uh, but yeah, it's become uh, a very profitable uh, hobby of mine to spend <laughs> a, a week or 10 days in Vegas every summer. <laughs> to give people some perspective on that, talk about your main event experiences. How high have you finished? How have you done there? And then we'll talk about some of the other day-to-day elements of a poker player. <laughs> uh, yeah, so to give people some context, so the World Series of Poker is a series of uh, what's now about 72 tournaments. I mean, probably not too dissimilar from like a track meet, you know, different disciplines, different lengths of time, different buy-ins, uh, but it all culminates in the, the main event, which is a $10,000 buy-in, no limit hold'em tournament that gets about 7,000 players every year. Uh, and I finished 18th one year, uh, 66 another year, so a I don't know, probably one of maybe a couple dozen people to have two top 100 finishes in the last decade or so. And those have paid out pretty well. Uh, and then there's, again, a series of other events leading up to the main event. And I finished second out of 4,400 in one of those uh, two years ago. So had three pretty big, um, pretty good runs uh, in the poker world. And you, somebody who has $10,000 just is say, hey, I want to go play the World Series of Poker, right? So. It, well, there um, are some of those. That's kind of, there are a lot. That's what makes the main event such an amazing tournament because there's 7,000 people in this tournament, and I'd say about 2,000 of us have a legitimate chance of winning. So it's 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 an interestingly soft tournament. I think the reason why people are so compelled, I mean, frankly, probably a lot like people signing for the Boston Marathon. Like I get to go be on the course, and there's Meb right up there. This is so cool. Can I beat Meb? No, um, <laughs> but I'm there on the course. I get to experience it. So I know a lot of poker people have bucket list to go play and, and uh, it's uh, it's real easy to know who's on the bucket list experience and, and it's real fun taking their chips plus the tv <laughs> the tv proliferation of poker and the prize money frankly that's at stake and some of the amateurs who have won and taken away big t- paydays have drawn other amateurs to that event yeah for sure and that started it i mean it's like 13 14 years ago now a guy named chris moneymaker with perfect name is amateur <laughs> uh, and he went and won like 
won like two million, two point five, something like that. But people believed, and truly, amateurs can definitely win. But you have to be a pretty good amateur to have a chance. And the game itself has gotten, frankly, a lot better. Uh, the average amateur is a lot better as well. But there's still you know, a lot of people that don't don't quite belong there. <laughs> but don't tell them that. So you're not uh, a professional in the sense that you do this full time. But no. you are a professional in the sense that you make money at it. Yeah, skill level, I, I think I, oh, I know. When it comes to tournament, no limit hold'em, I, I would take my game against anybody in the world. Again, but I put that caveat. There's probably about 2,000 of us that are kind of at the very top level, and any of the 2,000 of us could be the poker champion in a given year, but there's a lot of other bad players that play this tournament. <laughs> so talk about the subculture of the sport. Like, let's take a main event as an example. I mean, you're, this is a pl- tournament that's happening over days and days and yep. days. You're playing how many hours a day? And what's it like being around that? Because it's a bunch of, a lot of men, <laughs> probably mostly men, that are holed up in these rooms, playing for hours and hours, trying to focus. But then what happens afterwards? What's happening around it? What's the experience like? Yeah, the main event um, is now 10 days long. Um, there's there's definitely break days in there. Uh, and then the, each day is 13 or so hours long with some breaks. Um, so it's definitely a mental grind. And people ask me, like, what do you do to get ready for that? I, I hear you say you don't actually play that much poker when you're at home. What do you do to get ready? And, and the best thing I can do to get ready for poker is actually get in really good physical shape, run, run more, bike more, whatever that is and in, in, in where I'm at in that given year. But there's a direct correlation. My best poker performances have correlated directly with years when I've gone to Vegas in really good shape. Because uh, you're just, towards the end, it's just so easy to get tired and just want to kind of bag it up. I was playing the first day of the main event this year with this guy, and he it was, it was so stupid. He, he looked around the table like, man, he started yawning. And he's like, yeah, I'm not going to play any hands the last two levels. I'm just going to kind of rest here. It's like, well, you know, if I get aces, kings, or queens, I'll play. <laughs> but that's it. And so he literally started folding every hand, and then he finally played one. He's like, oh, is this guy like on a sick blow? Like, is he messing with me? And then he showed it. He had kings. I was like, oh, my gosh, you're playing so bad right now. And, and putting this in math perspective, he, the, the way he played those last two hours, he gave up, I'd say, two or $3,000 worth of his equity in that tournament. And then it was just because he was tired. So, like, because I'm in shape, that, that's a two or three thousand dollar edge that that i had over him in this tournament it's amazing it seems like there's a lot of over out of shape poker players though so that has to be a significant advantage for you (laughs) yeah right i mean just watching world poker tour or something like that these guys aren't the pinnacle of fitness (laughs) no some some aren't but some i mean i would go to the gym every morning and and there there are definitely players out there working out with me And, and you don't have to be in good shape to win i mean this year's main event winner was uh very round um but it certainly helped so you've got a bit of a, I don't know how conventional, it, everybody's got to raise these stakes, right? $10,000 to play in the game, correct? Correct. And um, once I started coaching you, you, I'd already talked to you a couple of times about my interest in poker. I, I'm, I'm a very poor poker player, but I have fun. That's po- why you're invited to my poker game. <laughs> I, I see. He did, he, he did invite me, by the way. I might have to go do that. But um, <laughs> Lunch money, hopefully, is <laughs> the stakes. The yeah. stakes are a little higher. <laughs> Free coaching at some point in time. Man. I'll, be oh. on, I'll be in for okay. all. I'll be in for all. Um, but you've, you've come up with an interesting way. I, you, you, when I was showed interest in the sport, you said that, hey, I put you on my on my mailing list, and you basically give a blow by blow play through of what your tournament experience is like, and it, you also give folks an opportunity to to buy in with you, correct? So tell us a little bit about how that works. I'm sure it's not open to the whole world, but it's more along the lines of in an invite situation. Yep. So t- it was so interesting for me to read your that your prep in that way. It was just 
and and that would be interesting for I think for our listeners to hear how you've approached that. Yeah, so the first time I qualified for the main event uh, was 2006. I was still just a teacher at the time uh, on a teacher salary. So playing in the main event, got like 8,700 players that year, first place for like 12 million, something crazy. Like I'm, this is crazy. I, I'm a 25, 26-year-old teacher playing this tournament, and it felt like kind of uh, a bucket list type thing, and, and I wanted my fellow poker playing friends to be able to live vicariously through me. So I said, hey, you know, for... 100 bucks or something like that. You can, you can have 1% of whatever I win, and I promise just to vlog about the experience. And, and I'm so glad that I did because it, it honestly it made me better at the poker table because I was like, man, I, I'm, you know, I have people <laughs> following along, and, and I, I need to play well, so I have a good day one recap and day two recap. Uh, so that, that was the orig- origin of it, and um, you know, it just went well. So I, at this point, thankfully, I don't need to kind of sell those shares to be mm-hmm. able to, to, to play in this tournament. But it's just so much fun having a following and, and having hundreds of people who are, I mean, they'll literally be watching online like, oh, I see you're like 13th in chips now. This is so exciting. I'm getting texts like, you know, during my breaks, it's really fun and it makes <laughs> me play better. So I, I'm glad to have the opportunity to allow people to invest. Uh, and it's been a very, thankfully, very profitable investment. Uh, if you've done it every year, you would be way ahead. That's super cool. That's super cool. So for the poker geeks who might be listening, let's just give a little story maybe from this year's main event a hand how it played out maybe a read that you got on somebody that you thought was particularly cool or maybe a bad beat that you have what's just a story from this year's tournament that poker geeks might geek out on hmm. um gosh uh there's so many I, I what always comes to mind in every poker's player's uh uh ha- um, head is is the hand they go out on i mean that's the the most memorable hand of the year which kind of sucked um so i I was made it to day three of the main event this year, which means I outlasted I don't know, 70% of, of the field, and I hadn't even really had to go all in or risk my chips. I was able to accumulate quite a few, and I looked down. I had pocket aces. I hadn't had pocket aces in like a day and a half of this tournament. I was like, this is exciting, and get it all in with this guy. He has jacks, and that's a pretty standard situation in poker, so ordinarily, I'm like 80% to win, and my neighbor whispers to me. He's like, oh, I folded a jack. I'm like, oh, that's good. That's one less owl I have to avoid, so like 90% chance to win. And of course, the the jack comes uh, on the turn. So that that sucks. But you know, that's I got it in good. I mean, that's all you can do in poker, and that's all I historically do is just get it in good. And if I can avoid bad beats, I will do really, really well. Uh, but bad beats happen. You know, we talk in distance running, especially marathoning, about weather and other variables that you don't have any control over. But in that game, the game that you're playing, it is over and over and over and over the random variables right i mean it's like it, the uncontrollables are immense the huge number of uncontrollables in every hand that you're playing yeah for sure and tournament poker is especially challenging because only about 10 to 15 percent of the field will make the money so even if let's say i'm a really good player i might make the money 25 30 percent so you know 60 70 percent it's going to happen and and i could miss making the money five six seven ten fifteen times in a row this is mathematically normal Variance uh, and variance is, is a bitch in poker. They like to say, and, and I've had my variance go both ways. So let's talk about the mental sides of the game. You mentioned being physically fit as being important. How do you prepare them for the mental side? If you were going to coach someone on the on the mental side of poker, what would be your tips? <laughs> One of my uh, favorite lessons I ever heard in poker um, is uh, real famous pro said, "You know, if I was teaching somebody who's new to the game, I, I would have them go." 
sit outside and watch grass grow for six hours. <laughs> and then once they came back, I'd tell them to go watch grass grow for another six hours. <laughs> you have to be super patient uh, in poker uh, and wait for your hands. And, and so just because you're not getting aces dealt to you very frequently, you got to wait for your hands, wait for your spots, and, and wait to take advantage uh, of situations. And then I could get into all the math. I mean, I think there's three intelligences that are really critical in poker. So I would break it down into there's kind of a probability, mathematical uh, intelligence. Um, there's an analytical watching patterns. Uh, and then, frankly, the third one I tell people is psychological and, and talking about the mental game. So if I was coaching a, a young poker player, I would break it into those three buckets. And in the psychological piece, are you seeing any parallels with the training that you're doing for your running that play out? It's beyond just that fitness aspect. Are there things that you're... Uh, that you need to have as a runner that you that that being a high level poker player help or are there things about being a high level poker player that really help with your running and and talk about that a little bit yeah i'd say they go hand in hand in both directions but i think the discipline required to train for an event in running uh, i think helps a lot at poker and and just knowing yeah stuff's gonna happen as you've been saying you know you could wake up on race day it could be 90 degrees and humid and like, like just the way it goes so mm -hmm. like applying that to poker like you get it all good get it all in good and you might lose okay that's just oh well just make the most of what, what what's coming your way mm -hmm. and you, you get to deal with failure a lot we, <laughs> we actually talked we talked on our last episode which you haven't heard yet episode 34 which we haven't released yet but will be coming out about feedback from one of our listeners who talked about this idea of you don't really fail unless you just stop getting up and in poker, it struck me as I was thinking about preparing for this that you get this great microcosm of being able to fail a lot and just get really good at failing and then getting back into it. Talk about that dynamic in poker and if it translates to running at all. You know, I've never worried about failure. Uh, if you do all that you can to prepare and, and you do everything that's within your world of control, I, I mean, yes, you may have not succeeded in, in terms of hitting a target, but like comrades, I've failed to hit my, my goal time, but I don't consider it a failure at all. Like I did everything I, I could do to prepare and, and it is what it is. So yeah, I just don't r really worry about the word failure or failing or anything. Do what you can, control what you can, and, and the rest plays out as it will. It's such a, it's, uh, we should reiterate that to our listeners that it's, it's not all of who you are, no matter how invested you are. There are other things. So tell us some of the other things in, in your life. I know that you've had this lifelong, you've been in the education lifelong. Tell us a little bit about how you got started to be a teacher and then also kind of what has led you to sort of making education more than just a job. It's obviously an extreme passion. And as most teachers have that, but you've really, you've, you've, you've gone much further in that regard, I would, ex I, I, it seems to me. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, so I, as you mentioned earlier, went to Duke and actually have a civil engineering degree. So the, the passports teaching was not uh, a normal one. Um, mm -hmm. But I found my way into teaching through Teach for America, which is basically an organization trying to ensure that all children have access to a great quality education. So I taught for a few years in Atlanta, uh, but then shifted out to LA and worked in charter schools. And, and charter schools are part of the public school system. And, and the goal of most charter schools is to be in neighborhoods where uh, there hasn't been great access to, to uh, high-performing schools. And so bringing it kind of full circle to Austin, I mean, Austin's an amazing city. We are great at a lot of things. We've got a great running culture, great food. 
One thing we are particularly bad at is educating low-income kids in our community. So as an example, um, you know, across the country, 10% of kids growing up in, in low-income neighborhoods graduate college. In Austin, we are graduating 6% of our kids who are growing up in low-income neighborhoods. So the school I started, Austin Achieve, is, is basically seeking to respond to that, that need to have a high-quality school option in a neighborhood where it's needed the most. So you've just been in Teach for America your whole life, pretty much. And yeah. in, in, not in that organization, but in that role. Yeah, education reform. Yeah, TFA, mm-hmm. you've officially commit two years, but I've stayed on as a, the active TFA alum and, and just really engaged with, with the work and, and just believe that high-quality education can, can break cycles of poverty. Um, so I'm glad to be a part of it. What are the key things for a student coming from that world? Ooh, um, towards them being successful. Right. Yeah, uh, we, we emphasize what we just call the whole child at Austin Achieve. Um, you know, families in, in low-income communities typically aren't, you know, grabbing their kid after school and taking them to swim practice. Uh, so we, the school, believe that we are providing, you know, comprehensive services outside the classroom, uh, a lot of social-emotional learning, uh, again, a lot of extracurriculars. Uh, but frankly, just creating a mindset where college is also for you is a big part of it. Uh, the vast majority of the kids that I work with will be first-generation college students, so we have to have a mantra going into is like, no, you are going to college. And, and again, that's not a message they are necessarily getting at home. Their parents want the best for them. There, there's no doubt about that, but they're, they're not growing up in, oh yeah, college is the expectation. Okay, switching gears as we wrap, I, I want to put my coaching hat on and ask the question maybe Steve has already asked, but I haven't yet heard an answer on, which is why do you do this, thinking about the sport of running, and how has that evolved? I know you're competitive, but it's got to be more than that. And what, what things do you struggle with as a part of your running journey? Hmm. Well, I think I'm definitely into setting goals and, and kind of like we're saying, what's next? I love picking a really cool race and using that as motivation. Um, the struggle. I mean, obviously I've set, I think, an ambitious goal to qualify for Boston. That's going to be a struggle. I, I was running with a group and I was kind of on the, the back end of the group today. And then I know basically this group represents Boston qualifying times and, and I know I'm not there yet. And that's a, that's a, it's a bit of a mental struggle that I might invest months and months uh, of energy into this goal I want to achieve, but I could actually fall, fall a little short. So I guess that that's a bit of a struggle. Um, Would that be considered fear, fear of failure? Yeah, it's funny. He, he, <laughs> He handles failure well, but the failure on the front end can be. It's so, but but the funny thing is, is he's saying he could, he worries about that, just like you or I worry, you know, about whether like I worry if my car is going to be out in front of my house. It's like it's going to be out in front of my house, but <laughs> you, 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 it, not that not to say that it's a done deal. I mean, I'm not trying to say that, John. That I, I don't want people to think that John's not going to have to work very very hard to get his Boston qualifier, but. Um, it's a refreshing approach that you bring, I think, and one that I think would be valuable for the folks that are our listeners to see. Here's a question, though, is that, so you have this goal to qualify for Boston. You could have probably gotten there faster if you hadn't gone the Ironman path, the Comrades path. So you definitely have a curiosity to do a bunch of different events that might have taken away from the time it would have taken to get that goal to qualify. So... Is that a limitation or is it just that you didn't know like what we talked about, which is the, the command performance as that being so important? Yeah, I think it's just more a product of how things fell. I mean, I did the first marathon, I mean, just 18 months ago. And then my immediate next jump was like, oh, I got to do an Ironman, which was basically a year ago today. So I kind of 
check those two boxes off, and then Ultra was was that next step. I, I, so Boston was like step four of, of whatever <laughs> journey I'm on right now. Very good. Yeah, so the uh, assuming you get your BQ and you'll get an opportunity to run Boston, what what other what's next other than like thinking about comrades? Because now you're basically checking that box off twice, right? In a sense, knowing yeah. that what's what what would be the next race for you as you look as you look down the line? Yeah, so I was up in Colorado for work in June, and I signed up for the Leadville just a little half marathon up there, uh, and I just became totally infatuated with the Leadville 100 being uh, the next ultra, <laughs> and, and as talked about earlier i need to check a hundred miler off so that will be a fun target so box I, number five box box five yeah <laughs> maybe <So> that's possibly <laughs> august uh august of 18 and then we'll just keep as long as my body is willing and able or able uh it's willing um i'm gonna mm-hmm. just keep seeing what's next cool very cool well it's cool it's been cool to have you on one of the things that i take from this as it as you talked about poker somebody would train for it by just watching grass grow I think a lot of times our running training is is kind of like that, where you're just putting in the miles without any sexiness or glamour. A lot of those miles that people don't see, and those are the miles that make the results. I've been talking to my group recently in one-on-ones about their medium-long day on Mondays, which is the day they don't come to Rogue, is the day that matters the most. Like The sexy days are Wednesday when we're doing our speed work and Saturday when we're doing our long run, and they think those are the most important, but they're not. They're really, it's the, it's those eight and 10 milers on Monday that are actually going to get them to where they want to be. So it's the miles that you're doing. It's watching the grass when you're, when you're getting ready for poker that that's where the winning is. And watching grass grow is a lot harder than running 10 miles for six. <laughs> I can tell you that for sure. For sure. <laughs> uh, I also but, know I shouldn't play poker with John because I've gotten very little ability to stay patient or focus. So I'm going to go all in way too early. <laughs> <laughs> Easy money over here. So last question, John, as we wrap, do you have any questions for us as a listener? You've listened oh, to a lot of episodes so far. And now you're on one, but as as things have progressed, what would you ask us as a listener? Yeah, so I've been curious since the first episode. So one of the two reasons I think I joined Rogue was the enjoyment of this podcast. Um, and y'all don't have any ads or bring in any revenue through ads. I'm curious. I I'm I I guess I'm revenue for you now as an athlete because of this podcast. <laughs> but I, I must be your first revenue generated. Oh, why no ads? <laughs> well. That's a little bit of a longer story, but first of all, for us, this is a passion project, and it's our business, and Steve and I sit around talking about stuff like this anyway, so we thought, you know, maybe people would want to listen in on these conversations, and so we added a little structure. I happened to have another podcast that I'd been working on for a year before we started this one called Dads on Duty, which was a dad podcast. My friend and I co-hosted that. We each had three kids. We talked about our journey as fathers for 55 episodes before before we did our first one of this. And so I had a little bit of experience from it. And one day we were sitting around in December, we're like, hey, we should do a rogue version. And we recorded an episode, we posted it, not knowing if it would ever be more than one episode. Mm-hmm. And I think we had 600 downloads in like a couple of hours, which was more than I was getting from my dad podcast in a month. <laughs> and so it so it kind of took on a life of its own from there. Since then, we've largely been focused on keeping it real. We don't want to commercialize it too much because we want to just focus on building listenership. And a lot of 
you know, what you read about in terms of podcasts is you want to kind of focus on the network first and then worry about commercializing it later. So it might be coming at some point. We don't know if that's ever going to be in the in the stars for us. But for now, it's just about talking about the sport we love and hopefully, hopefully people come along the journey with us. And we've been really interested in Chris and I have so much material, literally. We've even talked about splitting this podcast off into two different podcasts in terms of material. Somebody asked me recently, are you ever worried you're going to run out of stuff to talk about? And I said, as long as there's a race tomorrow, which there will be a race tomorrow, I will not have to be done with material to talk about. Um, and from a coaching perspective, I've been coaching for you know a, a really long time, 25 years. And while many of the same questions come up, they always are nuanced and adjusted for the individual. So I feel like we'll never have we'll have lots of things to talk about. And I don't know, for me, I'm like, I always, I don't really want to talk about underwear, right? I don't want to talk about something I don't believe in. So in an essence, we would need to, from my view, a lot of that is fear, a fear of not, of, of how would I control that piece, which Chris and I have talked about the ability to do that. But I think in a sense, I don't look at it as a sellout. I don't want anybody to think that. I'm, I'm totally up for selling, quote unquote, <laughs> selling out. But I'm not so interested in selling this content to something that I don't also feel 100% behind. And um, I, I think that that would be a challenge to find folks that, other than Rogue, <laughs> that yeah. I feel that way about. So I don't know. The biggest thing for us that's been fun is to extend our reach beyond Austin. You know, now yeah. about two thirds of our listeners are from Texas. About 75% of that Texas slice of the pie is Austin, but we're, we're reaching into Dallas and Houston. And then one third are now from out of state. So it's starting to build our name, our network, and our listenership beyond these four walls, which we then potentially could monetize with virtual training and other things like that down the road. I think you'll see that before we have an ad on the show, but we'll see. <laughs> well, as a listener, thank you for the podcast and thank you for no ads. That's a uh, double win. <laughs> <laughs> well, we appreciate you coming on, John. This was really, really fun. Yeah, I had a great time. So we will wrap it with that. As always, you can provide feedback and maybe end up on the show. So you can send us an email, chris at roguerunning or steve sisson at roguerunning.com or check us out on our website, roguerunning.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at roguerunning. This has been episode 35 of the Running Rogue Podcast. We'll talk to you soon.